Ecclesiastes. And I got kind of a funky thing going here with my glasses here, so just excuse me, just one quick second. Because y'all look like zebras. <laughs> We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. When I get to heaven, I'm going to get new eyes. And I'm going to see what y'all really look like. You probably get scared to death. Oh, wow. You guys are... It's great. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. We, we enjoy the scriptures. Lord, we are challenged by the scriptures. We are enlightened through the scriptures. Lord, uh, you work in our hearts in so many different ways whenever we study the scriptures. And, and Lord, we, we realize this is the script. This is the script for life you've given us. And Lord, if we want to uh, succeed and play our part, we'll take heed to the script. Work in our lives tonight again as we turn our attention now to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, when Jason Lehman was 14 years old, he wrote a poem and he mailed it to Abigail Van Buren. She checked out its authenticity and she published it in her Dear Abby column. As you'll see, Jason was wise beyond his years. He was quite the philosopher, even as a teenager. His poem reads, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted. The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted. The colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted. The beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted. The freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted. To be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted. The youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted. The presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. This was Ecclesiastes, or the preacher's summation. Life is one boring, long, frustrating, perplexing, pain-in-the-neck experience. King Solomon is the preacher, and he's on a search to find purpose under the sun. That means he's looking at meaning for life apart from God. Solomon deliberately leaves God out of his equation. He only examines what can be seen and heard and experienced on a physical level. And understand, these confessions are not from the kid who graduated from homeschool and then went to work for dad and then got married at 20, two kids by 25, vacations every year in Destin, and spends holidays with the in-laws. Solomon's life was far from sheltered or predictable. This was the richest man on earth. His thrill-seeking had an unlimited budget. He was king. So he could spend his days exactly as he pleased. You see, King Solomon was no weekend warrior. He spent every day, all day, in pursuit of pleasure. For a time, he made it his full-time occupation just to satisfy himself. And yet Solomon concluded, Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life is like chasing soap bubbles. You pursue it. You grab it, and then it pops right through your hands. You spend your time and your money and your effort, and yet you have nothing to show for your sacrifice. It was said of King Solomon, he had it all, but nothing mattered. Solomon would agree with William Cowper when he wrote, life is, like to life is the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old, drawing up nothing. Wow. It's been said life is a wild goose chase without the goose. Ecclesiastes, you see, is a researcher. 
He's turning over every rock. He's sucking up substances and experiences. He's accumulating stuff. He's putting his hand on every endeavor in this pursuit of purpose. Education and pleasure and sex and comedy and parties and wine and houses and posses and food and music and justice. Tonight, Solomon strikes a few more possibilities off his list. But rest assured, his conclusion is going to be the same. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Chapter 4 begins with a rather cynical and bitter Solomon. He mentions the oppressive conditions that exist in many quarters of the globe. Verse 1. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power. But they have no comforter. This frustrates Solomon. That injustice exists in the world. You know, nothing causes us to despair of life quicker. Nothing causes us to want to throw up our hands and call it quit quicker than the injustice and the oppression that exists around us. And remember, Solomon is the king. You would think that he, of all people, could do something about injustice. But evidently, the solution is not legislative or social or legal. The problem is much deeper. You see, injustice is a spiritual problem. Why does one person oppress and use and abuse another person? (laughs) The answer is the sin that is in man's heart. You know, Gary Preston, he puts it this way. He says, life is a crushing disappointment because what we expect and hope to get from it doesn't really come. We expect goodness and righteousness to be the way to happiness, fulfillment, and prosperity. Instead, we find that the cheater gets the high grade on the exam. The liar is elected to office. The embezzler lives in the mansion and drives the Mercedes. The immoral man marries the beautiful woman. Ecclesiastes sees these contradictions and concludes that life is vanity, a devastating disappointment, a confounding contradiction. Well, he says in verse 2, Therefore, I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. I mean, Solomon sees death as a gift. It's literally our only way out of all this frustration and irritation that we call life. And apparently, Solomon is not the only person to conclude that being dead is better than being alive. Did you know that every year in America, 400,000 people attempt suicide? 40,000 people succeed. And you know, I understand the rationale. If all that exists is just what's under the sun, boy, this life can be a tremendous letdown. The famous atheist Voltaire, he reached the same conclusion. He said, I hate life, and yet I'm afraid to die. He just didn't have the guts to pull the trigger. Now understand, Solomon isn't advocating putting a revolver to your head and blowing your brains out. Life is worth living. In fact, you can read again Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24. There Solomon tells us to enjoy our life, not end our life. That God has created life full of blessing. He wants us to live and to enjoy every pleasure that we can extract from life. Here's the caution. Just don't try to find ultimate meaning temporal stuff that that's where we get into trouble that's where we become frustrated and irritated you see we all die but between now and then God wants us to love him and to enjoy his blessings just know that the real pleasures are yet to come they won't be experienced in this life death is the escape hatch that leads from a fallen world to an infinite pleasure But until God opens that hatch, he tells us to make the most out of our lives. Now verse (laughs) 3 gets even more pessimistic. He says, yet better better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Better than being dead or alive is just to have never existed at all. I remember contemplating this very point before Kathy and I started our family. You know, you you think life is cruel. Life is wicked. 
You know, there are people, evil people in this world that, that abuse and misuse each other in deplorable ways. And you think, do I really want to bring a child into this kind of world? On top of that, children can be swayed. And they can be influenced by this evil and they can end up going to hell. Do I really want to take that risk? Truly, it would be better to never exist than for a person to go to hell. You know, life comes with no guarantees. And I can empathize here with Solomon's point. Life is so full of risk. Are you better off just never entering the front door? I think this would be true if it were not for Jesus. Here's the conclusion we came to. Here's the reason we had kids. Knowing Jesus is so incredibly fantastic that it's worth the risk of not knowing him. Knowing Jesus is is so incredible that it's worth coming in the front door to, to have that opportunity to be able to know Jesus and love Jesus and walk with Jesus. But the frustrations continue to flow here in verse 4. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. I mean, a man works hard to pull himself up. He goes out and he gets an education and, and learns a skill and he becomes successful. And do his neighbors admire him for his efforts? Not hardly. They all get jealous of him. Long-lost cousins come out of the woodwork. He's got a little money. They want to borrow the money from him. You know, he has to limit who comes over to his house. Unless somebody feigns an accident, turns around and tries to sue him. You know, a rich guy is never sure if the girl he's interested in is, is, wants to marry him for him or whether she just wants to marry him for, for, her, for his money. I always worried about that with my good looks. You know, I didn't know whether Kathy really liked me or whether she just was, you know, that attraction and all. But, but this is frustrating. I mean, gain success and, and people want to take it away from you. They, they don't even rejoice in it with you. He goes on, he says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. In contrast to the industrious, hardworking man in verse 5, the fool, he just does nothing. And yet Solomon concludes it's best to be somewhere in between. Verse 6, he says, better a handful with quietness, with both hands full, together with toil and grasping for the wind. He's saying, give me just enough to meet my needs. With wealth comes hassles, too many hassles. It complicates my life and, and my love. I'm better off just to have a handful with quietness than both hands full of, of wealth. Verse 7, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Now here's a guy who goes too far in the other direction. To protect his wealth, he, he never gets married. That's a good way to protect your wealth. Or have kids. He never joins a church. He never sees his brother. He just lives life solo. This could be the woman who's too busy with her career to take time to start a family. I mean, she just loves the good life. But it'll be a lonely life if she's not careful. He goes on and he says, Yet there is no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks For whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? I mean, here's a person who loves making money, but he never stops and asks himself why. He's accumulating all this wealth, but he has no one to spend it on. No one to share it with. I mean, why work yourself to death only to leave it to strangers or to the government? Solomon states, this also is vanity and a grave misfortune. There's a Jewish proverb A friendless man is like a left hand deprived of the right. Look around. Remember that the only things that you see that will last forever are the people sitting next to you. That's it. The only thing that will last forever are our relationships. That means that if you're too busy for people, then you're too busy. 
He says in verse 9, he discusses the value of family and friendship. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. You know, a wife and kids at home, depending on your paycheck, has turned many of a goof-off into a faithful employee. You get serious when you have mouths to feed. He says, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. All over Palestine, the terrain is rocky and it's steep and it's tricky. And it makes it dangerous to travel alone. You know, you could be walking down some narrow path and you could slip and you could fall into a ravine and you'd be dead before anyone could find you. Wild animals and road pirates also roam the mountain passes of Palestine. And these dangers made traveling alone by yourself very dangerous. For all of the same reasons, it's dangerous for us to travel through life alone. We can slip. We can fall. We can be robbed. We can suffer and be harmed. That's why it's important for us to have people around us who love us, who are in it together. You know, there's a book out entitled Bowling Alone. It says that bowling is up, but bowling leagues are down. Why is that? More people are bowling alone is the thesis of the book. But it's more than just bowling. That's just the tip of the iceberg. More people today live alone. More people raise, raise kids alone. More people worship alone. More people work alone. More people do everything alone. People fear each other. Rather than, and so they prefer to be left alone. And yet this is not the way God created us to be. This is not the way God designed us to be. When God created Adam, he said, it is not good for man to be alone. Remember, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Two by two. He coupled them. He paired them. When we're born spiritually, Jesus connects us to God. But that's only half of it. He also connects us to each other, to the church. When we fall, we need someone to help us up. It's not good to be alone. Verse 11, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? In oriental cultures, on a frigid night, the entire family would gather together under one blanket. And the combined body heat would keep the whole family warm. You know, we also need each other's body heat. The body of Christ. You know, this is why CDs will never replace coming to church. You know, we need the human touch. We feed off each other's fervor and and heat and commitment. Our spiritual heat. It, It helps to melt the coldness in our hearts. It's tough to be isolated and stay fired up for Jesus. That's why we need each other in order to stay on fire for the Lord. And then verse 12 tells us, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. Two people united together are stronger and smarter and braver and more committed than one on his own. It's not good to be alone. You know, Solomon had it all. He had riches and he had royalty. He had pleasure and he had power. He had wisdom and he had fame. But what he valued most of all his possessions were his relationships. You know, when a man or a woman reaches the end of their life, they don't ask to see their checkbook or their investment portfolio. No, they ask to see their family and their friends. You know, Solomon thinks about relationships as the weaving together of a rope. We are all single threads that are growing stronger when we're intertwined with one another. But when he speaks of relationships between two people, he calls them not a twofold cord, but notice this a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Hey, Jesus is that third strand that holds together friendships and marriages and churches. He's the strand that gives, our strength, gives strength and tenacity to our relationships, that holds us together, that keeps us from stretching and snapping uh, amidst the pressures and the stretching of life. This is why I like the name of the high school ministry that we have. Zach calls it the strand. The strand. I like that. Who is the strand? The strand is Jesus Christ. Kids, too, need Christian friends to make it in their world. 
And Jesus is the strand that holds them together. He's our strand too. Beginning in verse 13 and on into chapter 5, Solomon embraces fame and power. And and he tells a rags-to-riches story about a king who rises from poverty to sit on the throne. But his story doesn't have a happy ending. He tells us, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. In other words, the people wanted a change. The previous king had become proud and had become arrogant. Experience had only made him callous. Thus they were willing to take their chance on a youth, a younger man. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. This young man who rises to power, he was like Joseph. He he started out in the prison. He started out in poverty. And yet he rose to occupy the palace. Here is the ultimate feel-good story. Sounds like a recent development in American politics. A young leader rises to power. People want change. Ecclesiastes, he notes the new king's popularity. He says, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. I mean, his meteoric rise made him the media darling. Upon taking office, his approval rating soared through the roof. This new king was treated like a rock star. Yet, those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. In other words, his fame didn't last very long. His star became a shooting star. He made some mistakes. He started to get criticized. After a few months, this, old, this young king became old news. You know, in a sense, this sounds like Solomon's story to an extent. Remember, David had his enemies when Solomon took the throne. Solomon was the President Obama of his time. And yet after a few months, he could say of his former fame, surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Fame is indeed a fleeting thing. I mean, the public is so fickle. Approval ratings are like roller coasters. You know, Oliver Cromwell, he took the British throne from Charles I. And shortly after he was crowned king, he was standing with a friend in the midst of a cheering crowd. He turned to his friend and he told him, he said, Do not put your trust in all the cheering. For those persons would shout as much if you and I were going to be hanged. It's true. Always remember the crowd on the Mount of Olives who praised Jesus on Sunday and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, were the very same folks who on Thursday, they were at Pilate's house shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Fame is a fleeting thing. Popularity is a moving target. I like how commentator Warren Wiersbe sums up Ecclesiastes chapters 3 and 4. It's worth reading to you. He says this, When Solomon looked up, He saw that God was in control of life and balanced its varied experiences. When he looked within, he saw that man was made for eternity and that God would make all things beautiful in their time. When he looked ahead, he saw the last enemy, death, and grew cynical. Then as he looked around, he understood that life is complex, difficult, and not easy to explain. He despaired of life and thought it was better to never have lived. Well, that's chapter 4. You excited? You encouraged? (laughs) In chapter 5, Solomon continues to pursue meaning, this time with religion. He says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they do evil. Walk prudently means to watch your step or to tread lightly. Now Solomon tells us that when you go before God, you should listen more than you should speak. You should be humble, not foolish. In God's presence, all men are evil. And this makes approaching God serious business. And this is true in any era, our era included. You know, Solomon spent seven years and a fortune of untold wealth building the temple. And yet, even as its builder, Solomon had no special rights or no special privileges. 
When he came before God, he was like every other man. You know, God has no prima donnas. All men come to God on the same terms, by faith. Solomon might have been king, but God is the king of kings. And notice here in chapter 5, Solomon's search for meaning. It turns from hedonism and materialism to now religion. For a time he tried to find purpose and pleasure, but now he turns and he tries to find fulfillment by serving God. He builds temples, and he makes sacrifices, and he utters praise, and he takes vows. But from an under-the-sun utilitarian perspective, this is not as satisfying as you might think. He says you end up having to watch your step. You have to walk prudently. You get no special advantages. Verse 2, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Solomon tried to be religious. But this too proved to be a slippery slope. It created in him a spiritual pride. You know, the more he did for God, the more proud of himself he became. And nothing is more nauseous to God than people boasting over their righteous deeds. As if God owes them the time of day, you know, for just, God owes them for just giving him the time of day. You know, Jesus said, if you do everything right at the end of the day, you're just a servant who has done his duty. Don't look for any special favors for doing your duty. God deserves the praise, not us. You know, when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, you remember they healed the sick and they cast out demons. And when they reported back to headquarters, they were amazed at what had happened. But Jesus gave them a reality check. In Luke chapter 10, he told them, he said, I saw Satan fall from heaven. I mean, you you think, you cast out a few demons, you think that's a big deal. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. See, the real miracle is not that demons were cast out. The real miracle is that he saved a demon like you. Your name is written in the book of life. The real miracle is grace, the grace that saves us. And this is why when we approach God, we should be mindful that holiness, not haughtiness, is what pleases him. He says, don't be rash. Listen more than you talk. Be humble. Respect God. Know your place. Don't just come before God shooting from the hip. Solomon discovered that religion can become a hobby. It can become a means to impress people rather than to please God. And oh my, he played the game. For Solomon, it was all about performance. His words, what he said and how he said it and when he said it and where he said it. His movements, doing the right thing at just the right time. Hey, this is religion. And he's warning us that to God, sincerity, not religion, is what really matters. Verse 3 For a dream comes through much activity, and a fool's voice is known by his many words. Solomon is telling us that it's easy to have good intentions without really sitting down to count the cost. Dreams and visions are are a dime a dozen, but pleasing God requires endurance. You know, it's been said a, a Christian and a tennis player have this in common. In order to have an effective serve, it requires a good follow through. Don't mistake a swirl of activity or emotion for real commitment to God. There has to be follow through. And this is Solomon's point here in verse 4. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. When you approach God, you need to mean what you say and say what you mean. And you need to be prepared to follow through. You know, vows were special demonstrations of devotion to God. You know, some vows were for a lifetime, such as marriage. Other vows were temporary. You remember Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist. They were the three men in Scripture who took the lifetime vow of the Nazarite. 
that no wine could come to their lips, that no razor could come to their head, that their hands could not touch any dead object. It was the vow of the Nazarite. It was a lifetime vow. In Acts chapter 21, to appease the Jews, Paul took a temporary vow. Marriage is a vow that we take before God. Marriage is an optional vow. Once you take it, it's permanent. But before you take it, it's optional. It's a special demonstration of a person's devotion to God. You see, you and your spouse agree to act out the church's relationship with Christ through the keeping of your marriage vows. You know, over the years, I've officiated many, many weddings now, and I've never once participated in a shotgun wedding where the bride and the groom were forced to wed. In fact, I've always made it my habit. I dangle the car keys in front of the groom just before we walk out of the the doors and come down to the altar. I actually pull the keys out of my pocket, and I dangle them in front of the groom, and I encourage him. I said, if you've got any doubts whatsoever today, I want you to take these kids. I want you to skip town. I want you to lay low for a few days. I'll go out. I'll take the heat. I'll offer the explanations and the excuses, and we'll just move on. And you know what? I do that every time I do a wedding. I make that offer to the groom. And not once has anyone taken me up on the offer. Some of you now may have wished that you had. But but not once has anyone taken those car keys from me. God doesn't require anybody to get married. But when you stand in this altar, and when you take your vows, and when you say, I do, you did. You're done. You've just made a promise that God in heaven expects you to keep. Hey, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Sylvester Stallone, a.k.a. Rocky, he made a comment about boxing in the movies that reflects the modern idea of marriage. Rocky's a great philosopher, by the way. But he said this about boxing. He said, boxing is great exercise as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. A lot of people treat marriage the same way. But God is saying when you take a vow, you can't then turn around and yell cut when things get rough, when times get tough. This is true when you take out a loan or when you sign a contract or when you agree to a friend, or when you promise your kids. God wants us to be men and women of our word. Better not to promise than to promise and then fail to deliver. Then he adds in verse 6, Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. Oh boy, how many of us have allowed that to happen? Nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Coming back to the pastor and and saying, Oh, wait a minute now. I know I got married last week, but, but, but that's a mistake now. We, we made a mistake. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Don't look back on a promise that you've made and then say it was a mistake. Remember, once you say, I do, you did. Don't say you didn't mean what you said. You know, it's amazing to me how estranged couples like to rewrite history. And it doesn't work on me because I was there in the beginning when you all mushy over each other and you were slobbering over each other and you loved each other and you said all these fun, fun things with each other and held hands and, and were all over each other. I was there when all that happened. Don't come back now and say, oh, it was never God's will. Oh, we didn't ever love each other. Oh, we were too young. I don't want to hear that. Don't try to rewrite history to give yourself an excuse to get out of a vow. Notice according to verse 6 here, God is angry at our excuses. Verse 7 tells us, For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. God wants us to follow through, not just have good intentions. And then he says, But fear God, for if you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. In other words, if there's not a profit motive for the officials to get involved, don't expect them to take up your case. 
Ecclesiastes is saying that unless there's money to be made, righteousness and justice also often gets lost in the red tape of a maze of bureaucracy. Ever been to the county lately? I mean, don't be surprised, he's saying, when you see corruption in government. You, you got officials being supervised by higher officials. I mean, when the watchdogs run in the same pack as with the dogs, conflicts of interest are going to be inevitable. Verse 10, he says, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Even the money motive doesn't ensure justice because money is never enough. People want more and more and more. And Solomon was the classic example. Get this. Solomon's royal allowance, his allowance of gold, was 666 talents a year. Now, a talent is a measurement of 100 pounds. That means that Solomon's annual income was 66,600 pounds or 1 million ounces of gold. At the current price of gold, it's about $1,000 an ounce. That means that today Solomon would be making $1 billion a year. And yet the more he had, the more he wanted. John Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough? And he answered, one more dollar. Solomon knew that money was not the key to satisfaction. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver. He says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit has the owner except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. When a man has a little, he needs a little. He works hard, he lies down at night, he enjoys his sleep, the sleep of a contented soul. But when goods increase, it tends to increase that man's appetite for goods. He starts losing his sleep. He starts plotting how to make more money to satisfy those appetites. And the more he gets, the more he wants. And it becomes a vicious cycle. Solomon is saying, hey, this is all vanity and emptiness. Like pleasure, there's nothing innately wrong with money. Money can be a tool for good. Again, just don't make it your ultimate goal. Like the man who said, money may not be the number one thing in my life, but it's way ahead of number two. That's the wrong attitude. Make money your goal, and life will become a letdown. When money is viewed as the end all, it becomes a source of frustration. I like what John Wesley said about money. I love his philosophy. He he said, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That's a good way to keep it all in perspective. Well, verse 13 tells us, There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches kept for their owner to his hurt. You know, I think of the guy who wins the lotto and it ruins his life. This happens all the time. I mean, suddenly, everybody close to him wants a piece of the pie. In 1988, Bud Post won $16.2 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. Today, this man lives on a $450 Social Security check and food stamps. He says of his lotto winnings, I quote, I wish it never happened. It was totally a nightmare. Shortly after his winnings, his girlfriend sued him for a share of the winnings. His brother hired a hitman to kill him. He invested in failed businesses of two of his other siblings. A year after his windfall, he was $1 million in debt. Bud went bankrupt. Solomon is saying, accumulating all this money, it's vanity, man. Families go to war over it. You become a target for envy and scams and lawsuits. No amount of money is worth that headache. He continues, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. And he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. 
And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Solomon bemoans the truth that we quote so often. You can't take it with you. Or or as the Jewish proverb puts it, shrouds have no pockets. And this is such a frustration for Solomon. Why work so hard all your life? You came in with nothing and you leave with nothing. Solomon is saying, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You labor all your life just to leave it to someone else. What's the deal with that? At the end of chapter 5, Solomon draws a conclusion. Verse 18, he says, here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. From Solomon's tone to this point, we might think that his advice to us would be to live an austere life. To develop a poverty mentality. To just separate ourselves from things that are material or physical. But Solomon does just the opposite here. He tells us to enjoy life. Man, he says, enjoy the gifts that God gives you. Enjoy the good things that God has put into life. Stop by Brewster's on your way home tonight for a big old chocolate ice cream. Skip rocks across the lake the next chance you get. I mean, skip work tomorrow and just go to the, uh, go up here to, to uh, Briscoe Park and just skip rocks across the lake and enjoy yourself. Enjoy a good rope swing. When's the last time you enjoyed a rope swing? Or relish the sight of your child, your little baby, as, as she sleeps in her crib? Or buy a pizza tonight with all the toppings? Not just the two that you get for the special. Tell them you want a supreme with everything on it. Celebrate a successful sale. Or the victory won by your favorite football team. Celebrate. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 tells us that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Enjoy it. You only have one life. God only gives you one life. You need to enjoy it. Solomon tells us here in verse 20 to enjoy the blessings of life. Just don't dwell, just don't think that that the blessings of this life are what's going to satisfy us ultimately and completely. That's where we get frustrated. That's where life becomes irritating. Don't dwell on life. He says to enjoy the blessings of life so that we won't dwell on life's disappointments and become even more disillusioned than we are. You know, generally speaking, life is good. Again, our problem is that we expect more out of it than it can deliver. Life under the sun will never bring ultimate fulfillment. It will never satisfy our deepest needs. Real life can only be found in Jesus Christ. You know, taken in and of itself, all of life is vanity. The job is vanity. The home is vanity. Even the kids are vanity. So you bring kids into the world. What's the deal with that? So that they can then bring kids into the world and then die. And then they can bring kids into the world and those kids die. And then they bring kids into the world and then they die. Where does all this cycle lead? What does it ultimately accomplish? There used to be a TV show titled, My So-Called Life. I think that might have been Solomon's title for his life. My So-Called Life. You know, Ecclesiastes discovers that life in and of itself is nothing but frustration and hassle and pain. It's a so-called life. Life finds its meaning only as we relate it to God. You see, when it fits into His plan, it gains value. I've heard it said, everyone has a can of peaches But Jesus is the only person who has the can opener. 
And life doesn't make sense. Your can of peaches doesn't make sense until you come to Jesus and find the can opener. And then everything in your life makes sense once you find Jesus. Everything gets a purpose. He's the key to life. Solomon is saying that God's gifts won't truly be appreciated and enjoyed apart from God. Apart from the God who gives those gifts. Makes sense. Jesus is what gives life its meaning. And in chapter 6, Solomon notes the vanity of both great riches and of long life. Verse 1, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. In other words, how often does a rich man smile? Instead of enjoying his wealth, he's saddled with multiple anxieties of how to keep his wealth and how to avoid other people who want to take his wealth from him. You know, John Lennon achieved unparalleled music success. Just this past week I read where two and a quarter million remastered Beatles albums were sold in the first five days after their release. Can you imagine? After 40 years, after the band's breakup, they they sell two and a quarter million albums in a single week, five days? And yet biographers write that in the final days of John Lennon's life, he was miserable. He lived as a recluse. He was very unhappy. You see, in the end, his popularity gave him no peace. His success gave him no satisfaction. Hey, possessions don't mean you will have the ability to enjoy them. Verse 3 tells us, if a man begets a hundred children, that's a lot. My daughter was telling me about that TV show where this gal's got 19 kids. Did any of you watch that? That's a lot. But a hundred kids? If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. I'm glad you came tonight so you could get all cheered up. He's saying life, even long life, 100 kids, 100 years, man, without love is vanity. You're better to never have been born than to live without love. And then he says, though it has not been seen, the sun, though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. Do not all go to one place. I mean, you can live 2,000 years, yet it won't guarantee happiness. A long life doesn't ensure a happy life. You know, a long life can just be a lengthy misery. I'm sure we can go down to the nursing home tonight and find a lot of unhappy folks. It's been said adding years to your life doesn't add life to your years. A lot of people today are interested in getting in shape and eating health healthy foods and all, so they can live longer. Why? You're not happy now. Why do you want to just stretch out your misery? We need to be focusing not on adding years to our life, but adding life to our years. That's what we need to be focusing on. What Jesus can bring to us. Verse 7 tells us, All the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. We're feeding the wrong thing, aren't we? A man tolls and sweats and labors for what can never fulfill him. It was said of C.S. Lewis, or it was C.S. Lewis who said, God cannot give us happiness or peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Until a man revolves his life around God, everything in it will be vanity. Verse 8, for what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? 
I mean, the wise man and the fool are subject to many of the same limitations. All humans, no matter their status, can only be at one place at one time. Can only do one thing at one time. Can only eat one meal at one time. Can only stay awake for so long at one time. I mean, you start stripping away the fluff and all people, wise people, foolish people, rich people, poor people, they have a lot more in common than they do that distinguishes them. Solomon is just saying, hey, you know, these things that we want to grasp, wisdom or riches, it's all vanity. Makes no difference. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In other words, in this life, no one gets all that they want. Solomon is basically saying that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Here's another way of saying verse 9. It's better to have a little and really enjoy it than to dream about a lot and never attain it. That's what he's saying to us. Verse 10, whatever one is, he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how is man the better? In other words, a man is a man is a man. You've always been a man. You'll always be a man. Humans sometimes view themselves as immortal. We want to be more than men. We want to be superhuman, but we're not. We want to be super mom. I don't want to be that, but some of you want to be that. But you're not. There's nothing super about any of us. No one rises above what what he is. We're human. We're all just human beings. In Christ, we can know God and we can live with God, but we'll still die like men. He says, for who knows what is good for man in life All the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? He's saying our lives are like ships on the ocean. We cut awake, but after a few minutes, any trace of the water that we've churned up disappears. Life is so short. Life is so fleeting. None of us are experts at life. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now that's looking at life under the sun, under the sun. But thankfully, there's more to life than just what's under the sun. When we look above the sun, when we look to heaven. This is why it was so important when Jesus kept talking about, I have come down from above. Jesus said that numerous times. I have come down from above. Why is that so important? He's saying that, that I'm not a part of this life under the sun. I, I'm, I'm above the sun. And I can bring you a life that doesn't exist under the sun. It only exists in me. And it's when we find Jesus. That's when the rest of our life begins to make sense. And begins to come together. Well. Next Sunday night, we're having our town hall meeting, as we mentioned this morning. 